0: Oh, Father, that is indeed the cry of my heart, and I pray the cry of my brothers and sisters that not be all else to us, save that Jesus is, that you, O oh God, are, like Paul said, I have decided know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. May that be our heart cry. And Lord, help us to be faithful making followers here in Lynchburg and launching them to the nations to live out the gospel life, whether here in the States or around the world, both men and women, white, black, skin color doesn't matter. For you've given ethnicities and experiences and even different cultures by your sovereign hand, and you've created us in our, in our mother's womb to demonstrate your glory in unique ways that fit our personalities and fit our giftings. And yet, you've called all of us, all of us to utilize those in the service of building your kingdom. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we open your word today, you would help us, no matter who we are, or where we come from, to not neglect Christ, to not neglect the great salvation that we have in his name bless our time together this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we'd love to get one into your hands. Please stop by the Welcome Center in the International Plaza after the service. If you're new to the faith or you don't even just maybe some of our children here don't know where the book of Hebrews is. New Testament, almost at the end of the New Testament. Or you can look at the front of your Bible or even Google it. it comes after Philemon, before James. And it was written to what we think, based upon what we see in, the, in the, the book itself, to a group that were predominantly Jews. Because of their extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. And yet, even though it was primarily written to them, it's also written to us to remind us of who Christ is and how he fulfills and and completes and fleshes out the Old Testament. Indeed, the book of Hebrews is perhaps the richest biblical theology found in the Scriptures because it helps us see how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together, culminating in the person of Christ. The book of Hebrews, I believe, is also a timely study. With everything going on in the world, to keep our eyes focused on Christ. Some time ago, I had the privilege of being able to work on my wreck diving certification uh, off the coast of Kenya. And we were diving about 70 feet down on a wreck called the HMS Hildesay. She was a World War II trawler. She was sunk with all hands on board. And as you dove down to the depths, and I just love scuba diving. It's a beautiful way to be able to to see God's creation from a different perspective and watch all of these sea creatures scurry along the seafloor and to think that the Lord created them all, knows them all, and even governs them microsecond to microsecond. But as we came down to this now artificial wreath, it had flipped over on its side, and we began to explore the wreck. As I explored the wreck around the perimeter and even went on the inside a little bit, it struck me down there on the ocean for I actually wrote this in my logbook of the tragedy that it represents. Because a shipwreck is not something that's a positive thing. It represents often a tragic loss of life, a tragic loss of potential. That ship is no longer good for anything except to be an artificial wreath really just a hulk of what it once was it can no longer carry goods between ports or destinations and it has undoubtedly affected the livelihood of those it once helped shipwrecks are tragedies and the apostle paul in 1 timothy chapter 1 verse 18 he's challenging timothy and he says hold fast To the faith and a good conscience. And then he gives an example of those who, by rejecting this holding fast, have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. We don't exactly know what steps they took to shipwreck their faith, but we do know, in contrast to Timothy, who is told, Hold fast, Alexander and Hymenaeus did not hold fast, and degree by degree, they drifted away and shipwrecked their faith. And the ocean going vessel that once was their faith no longer exists. It's a tragedy. And Undoubtedly the lives that were affected not only their own but even their family and friends who once they saw these people who were once vibrant in the faith and now shipwrecked upon the rocks of life. Shipwreck. It's such a vivid image. As a matter of fact, I want to give you the Greek meaning of shipwreck. So take out your journals if you have them. Take out your note things because I really think this will help you understand even more what this word shipwreck means means. You ready? The word shipwreck in the Greek means shipwreck. It is a wrecked mass of tangled wood and steel that no longer serves any purpose, but simply is a reminder of what it once was and a warning for those who would see the shipwreck. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and we're going to only go through four verses, I promised you we were going to slow it down, and here we are slowing down. But these first couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 2, picking up from what we've learned the last two Sundays, is a lighthouse reminder trying to ward us off of the rocks so that we do not shipwreck our faith. Too many men who once filled the pulpits of churches around the world have shipwrecked their faith as they walked away and neglected Christ. Too many men and women in various capacities and servings and vocations of life have shipwrecked their faith. And this section, these first four verses... Are a powerful reminder of, look what it says beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Let's understand this text. The first word, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, you should ask, why is it, what is it there for? What is it connecting? Therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, is connecting us to the argument made in chapter 1. If this is Christ, therefore, or let's review for just a moment. If Jesus is God's son, this is all chapter 1, the royal heir of the cosmos, creator of the universe, the very glory and imprint of God's nature, God, very God, The power by which the universe is upheld, holds together, and carried along. The great high priest who purifies the sinner. The exalted one who is superior to any angelic being. The God-man who reigns in the flesh. The one who is worshipped by the angelic host. If Jesus is indeed the one whose throne is perfectly good, whose reign will never end. The worthy one who will bring history to its appointed end. If he is the one indeed whose rule will never be contested, the one who will utterly destroy his enemies, if this is who Jesus is, chapter one, chapter two, therefore you better pay attention to him. If this is who he is, you better not neglect him. When someone important enters the room or someone with whom you have greatest respect and they open their mouth to address or to speak, Everybody quiets down. Why? We need to pay attention to this individual. How much more so when Jesus, the Son of God, ascends the stage of history and says, this is the way to salvation. This is the path to God. How much more should we pay attention? You see, chapter 1. Is exalting Christ. And the book of Hebrews is going to continue to do that. Exalt the person of Christ, the work of Christ, even as high priest. But parallel to this exaltation of Christ, there is also going to be this argumentation, these reminders of don't neglect him, don't drift away. Pay attention. If this is who he is, you better be careful. And there's a series of warnings that will continue to reappear through the book of Hebrews to remind us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If this is Jesus and you neglect him, there is no escape. The writer of Hebrews is making a very strong argument from the lesser to the greater. If we should listen to angels who mediated the Old Testament or gave the law, as it were, How much more the Son of God? All right, here's the big idea. You ready for it? The big idea as we go into this text, don't neglect such a mighty Savior. Don't neglect such a mighty Savior. You say, Pastor Nathan, you know, these big ideas aren't really that profound. They're pretty simple. Well, good. That's what they're meant to be. Simple encapsulations and gems that are from the text. And at the end of the sermon series, you should be able to string together all of these big ideas and get a really good paraphrase of what the book of Hebrews is about. So week one, as we looked in chapter one, verse one, Jesus is the final and best word. Big idea number two, Jesus is superior and most excellent. Big idea number three, So don't neglect this mighty Savior. We're going to build on this continually through this series. The writer of Hebrews is also making sure that we don't neglect because he wants to make sure that we inspect our lives. That we're not just playing the game of religiosity in church because my parents are Christians or because I go to a good church He wants to inspect and make sure that you actually have made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ yourself. Because if you have not, there is nothing shielding you from the just wrath of God. I'm going to touch on this just briefly. Because we're going to come back to this in later and in greater detail. Not today, but over the upcoming weeks and months. Because the writer of Hebrews is going to make the argument, you need to endure. And listen, True saving faith is proven by those who endure to the end. Those who do not endure to the end were never really saved in the first place. Now, you don't lose your salvation, but true saving faith is evidenced in good works, not in a perfect life. My goodness, we are a church of broken people. We all need God's grace and we make mistakes. But true saving faith will prove itself out by enduring to the end. And those who do not endure to the end prove that they were just playing the game. Now, some people can play the game really well because faux religion, fake spirituality, and our own flesh can have great zeal and even faux joy or pretend joy. And we go about our rhythms to try and save face with everybody and play the church game. But in fact, we do not have a relationship with Christ. We are resting in our own righteousness. We're resting in our own traditions and cultures and the way we dress or the way that we go about life. And we're resting in that, not in the reality that Jesus Christ came to save a sinner of whom I am the foremost. And blessed are those who are poverty stricken. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I recognize that I need a Savior. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I put my trust in him who took my place on the cross, not my righteousness. Nothing I do. It's only him. And the writer wants to make sure that you're not playing the game. Don't play the game. Don't neglect. Pay attention. Don't drift. How can you escape? Therefore, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. You know, drifting happens slowly. And if you've ever gone, you are gone canoeing maybe on a river or you're floating down a lazy river at some resort, um, how hard is it to sit there and be carried along with the cur- currents? No, you don't have to do anything. You can just sit there and drink your Coke and your fried shrimp and you're carried along by the current. In order just to go along with the currents, you just have to do Nothing. And that's exactly what the world wants. It's exactly what our flesh says. Oftentimes the lies of the enemy are not deny Christ, but it's like, no, you don't have to deny Christ. You don't have to, to, to reject him outright. Just, just don't take it so seriously. Just do nothing. But listen, a Christian who is doing nothing or someone who is doing nothing is drifting. And they will drift away from the Lord. Matter of fact, it is the Christian life that we must swim against the current. And if you're not swimming against the current, you're being carried along with it. If you think about life, it's easy to do nothing. It's easy just to switch on the TV. It's swimming against the current to actually pick up your Bible and spend a few minutes in prayer to make sure that you're prepared to love your family or your spouse. Or to get up in the morning and forfeit some precious minutes of sleep so that you can spend time with the Lord first. Let me ask you a very practical question. How are you this week going to swim against the current to make sure you don't drift from Christ? Because if you just go through the motions, you're going to drift. You're going to fall away. You're going to move step by step, increment by increment, fathom by fathom. And those who drift will find themselves cast upon the rocks. And those who find themselves cast upon the rocks will shipwreck their faith. Don't drift. Don't drift. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just, Retribution, what is he talking about? Angels, retribution, transgression. The Old Testament law was mediated or given, as it were, carried along by angelic revelation. Now you say, wait, I thought the law, Moses, that was given by God. And the answer is, yes, it was. Mediated by angels, carried by angels. Comes from God, they were his messengers. And the writer here wants to make plain And by the way, you may say, where do we get that from? Acts chapter 7, verse 53. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So if the law, the Old Testament law delivered by angels, proved to be reliable, and that when you broke the law, God answered in justice. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, you're reading through your Bible, hopefully, maybe throughout the year, maybe you're in the Old Testament somewhere, and you realize that when the law is broken, there has to be a sacrifice or there has to be justice. There has to be a response from God. So if that mediated by angels requires justice, how much more the gospel, the new covenant, carried by the Son of God Himself. If the one whom the angels worshipped is is transgressed, is it not even more just that there should be a response? Therefore, how shall we escape? The answer is you can't. If chapter 1 is true, which it is, about who Christ is, then we cannot escape if we neglect such a great salvation. This salvation was declared first by the Lord, God himself, Jesus in the flesh. He came describing and teaching about what salvation is. And then he says, it was attested to us by those who heard the prophets, the apostles, those who heard Jesus firsthand, the early church. Those who heard him passed it on to us and it still proved reliable. And it was affirmed and confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles When Jesus calmed the storm or healed the sick or when the sun darkened at the cross and the earth trembled in earthquake, all of these were signs and wonders to validate that this message of Christ is true. Even the early miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit given to the church to affirm and to validate this message to the unbelieving world. There is actually here in verse 3, just as a side note, a little bit of an evidence against Pauline authorship. And this is just, again, a tangent. Some people ask, who wrote Hebrews? We don't know. It may have been Paul. I tend to think Apollos or Barnabas. And here's one of the reasons why is because it says here in verse 3, it was attested to us by those who heard. So the writer of Hebrews is saying he heard it from the people who heard it firsthand. He did not hear it directly from Christ. He heard it second generation. The Apostle Paul is very clear in his other writings that he is an apostle born out of due time, or in other words, he received and saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. He also received direct revelation from Christ in the wilderness as he prepared for ministry. Paul saw and heard Jesus firsthand. The writer of Hebrews apparently had not. So just a side note. But the main point here is do not neglect such a mighty Savior. That's the big idea. Now, why does this matter? Let's ask that question. Why does this matter? Big idea? Why does it matter question? I'd like to tell you a story to help answer that question. We all like stories, right? Yes, no? Or would you prefer a didactic lecture? Stories are powerful because they also deal with real life and real person events. Now, the writer of Hebrews is very cognizant of the Old Testament and builds his argument based upon the Old Testament illustrations of even the the land of Israel, the people of Israel. And we want to tell the story of how God mightily delivered the people of Israel from Egypt and yet how they still drifted away from God. So you can turn there if you want for just a moment, or you can just follow along, and I'll give you a key verse at the end that kind of summarizes it all. So why does it matter that we not neglect such a mighty salvation? Well, let's learn from the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 6, God is going to speak to Moses. He tells Moses to tell the people, I am going to deliver my people. Why do they need deliverance? Well, you see, some 400 years earlier, Jacob and the people, by invitation of Joseph, came to live in the land of Egypt. There had been a great famine. The people of Israel prospered under Joseph's second-in-command reign under the Pharaoh. But a new Pharaoh came, and this Pharaoh did not remember Joseph, did not remember or love the people of Israel, so he enslaved them to build his empire. And build his empire they did. We don't exactly know what Pharaoh was in power when The exodus took place, but what we do know archaeologically and historically is that Egypt was at the zenith of its power. This was a superpower like no other in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, if you were the superpower, the big kid on the block, it meant that your gods were the biggest kids on the block. They were the most powerful. They were unassailable. They were the ones to whom you should follow. But here comes Yahweh. Exodus chapter 6, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. He promises the people there's going to be a mighty salvation, a mighty deliverance. How does he go about it? Well, Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, Yahweh, God, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So God begins a series of 10 plagues against Egypt. The first plague was against the Nile. Now, the Nile was seen as the giver of life to Egypt. You see, it flowed, interestingly enough, one of the only rivers that flows from south to north geographically, from sub-Saharan Africa between Tanzania and Kenya, all the way north to the delta In the Mediterranean. And as it travels along that thousand miles of journey, it picks up sediment and rich minerals. And as it flows into the Mediterranean, deposits them on the Nile Delta, fertilizing and overflowing its banks at different seasons and creating an extremely rich area that Egypt was called the breadbasket of the ancient world. It was the giver of life. And so the Egyptians worship the Nile, that is it being flowing from the thrones of the gods. And where is the first plague given? On the Nile, where God turns the water into blood. And Yahweh declares, there is only one giver of life. There is only one creator. There is only one who is in control. That is the God of the Hebrews. Nine more plagues then happen And each one targeted against a different Egyptian deity so that God might demonstrate that there is no God like him. Powerful, a savior. He delivers his people from Egypt and they march to the Red Sea. Pharaoh regrets his decision and sends his army after the Israelites. Now the Israelites say, now what are we going to do? Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. I love this. You only have to be silent. Just sit back and watch what God is going to do on your behalf. You don't contribute to it. It's a work that is totally God's. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 8, it says that God rolls back the waters with a blast of his nostrils. A breath. (laughs) If you go to the port cities around the world of the Netherlands where they've reclaimed land from the ocean, where they've built dikes to try and keep the water out, man has tried in vain for millennia to control the ocean and the powers of water and only with very limited success. And that's with our combined technological and industrial prowess. And yet God, with just a simple breath, pushes back the water so that the waters of the Red Sea with a wall of water on the left and a wall of water on the right, pushes back the water and they walk across on dry land. An unbelievably visual salvation. A powerful reminder that you would think would stick in the minds of the people. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then all of chapter 15 is devoted to them worshiping God in joy. But only if that worship would have continued. If only a good emotional moment carried with us into the week. You know, how oftentimes do we hope for that emotional tidal wave to carry us forward in a week and yet it quickly dissipates as our faith is weak. And what do we see in chapter 15? Now, worship is a wonderful thing. Singing and worship is, it helps enliven our hearts and, and it exposes and, and it expounds God's word through music and song and teaches our hearts in, in emotional ways that sometimes even just reading the Bible doesn't. But our lives must be anchored on the truth. Or as we face the battles that will come, we will be on weak ground and be unable to stand against the, de- the devices of Satan. And what happens to the Israelites? Oh, chapter 15, they worship. But oh, how quickly they and we forget the mighty salvation of God. So right after this worship time, they come to a place called Mara. It says that the waters were bitter. You know what the problem was? The water didn't taste good. It was undrinkable. But praise God, the Israelites said, remember his salvation, what a great Savior he is. We're not going to forget that. We're going to take what we learned back then and apply it in faith today. And if God can roll back the waters of the Red Sea, he can change the taste of this water. But what did they do? They faced an obstacle. They forgot or neglected what they had heard and learned. And instead, they just complained. They grumbled. Is God going to provide for us? Is God going to actually do what he promised? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know he took us out of Egypt. I know he took, it out of, took us out of the Red Sea. But is he going to give me sweet water to drink? It's ludicrous thinking, and yet is that not what so many of us do? Consider again when they were in the wilderness of sin and there was no food and the people grumbled again and said to Moses, what kind of leader are you? Do you know times are hard? Why did you bring us here, God? Why did you bring us here? And so God provided in his mercy and kindness and his patience quail and manna. At Rephidim, again, there was no water. And the people this time, they're outright quarreling against each other and against Moses and their leadership. They're just turning against. Because why? Because they have forgotten that can't the God who took them out of Egypt, can't he provide water? But they forgot. They neglected. They drifted away. And how quickly they complained. And how quickly we complained. I mean, think about this, and I I put myself right here with with you. This is not from me to you. This is us. You know, the world has been in turmoil for, really, since the fall. There's never been a time when the world has not been in tumult because we live in a broken, sinful world. COVID has been a tough year. And how many of us, instead of saying, the God who reigns on a high, chapter one, who has seen his people through some of the darkest periods of history, who has taken care and sustained his church, instead of saying, that's who I am, and I'm going to apply in faith to whatever's going on, I'm going to trust him, remain joyful, and push forward, but instead, we complain. And we grumble because things are inconvenient and because there are challenges. You know how appealing a complaining, grumbling church is to a lost world? Not very. You know what one of the first things to go out the window when we complain and grumble? About anything. It's joy. Somehow, somehow we think that we, we haven't gotten the right what we deserve. And so we grumble and we complain. Instead of, what about a church? All of us, and I'm talking about me too, is Lord, that's such a great Savior. If He could do it then, he can see me through now. So Lord, enliven my joy, enliven my, my peace and my gladness of heart that despite the challenges which I acknowledge and are issues and are things that do grieve my soul, but I am going to choose to be joyful believing that the God who was God then is God now and is God tomorrow and he holds tomorrow in his hand. Therefore, I can worship unendingly and unceasingly knowing that I, God, is in control. I mean, can't we amen that together? And yet, how often, like the people of Israel, we complain. You know what? One of the reasons we complain and we grumble is because we get our eyes off of that great Savior. We get our eyes here. We get our eyes here. We get discouraged and we overwhelm and we forget Christ. And that's why I love Hebrews, because it, it won't let us forget Christ. And the writer here is, Don't neglect Him, don't neglect that salvation. And then they go to Mount Sinai. Now, God descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke. Great power. Exodus chapter 19. But that God made them uncomfortable. Too powerful, too holy. Expected too much from their perspective. I see so you know what they said? They said, you know what? We don't, we don't we, you know, I need right there. Hey, my God, I'm uncomfortable with. I want a God that I'm more comfortable with. I want a God that that I can relate to in the sense that he's okay with what I want. And so what did the Israelites do? They fashioned a golden calf, a God that they were comfortable with. And one of the ways that we drift from God or neglect God is not that we outright neglect him. It just begins with simple complaining, grumbling, and dissatisfaction. And then we want to remake and reshape God so that we're comfortable with him. So that God will be comfortable with our morality, with our standards of holiness, with our levels of devotion and dedication, instead of bowing the knee and worship. And so little by little, what you find even in the church in America today are God's remade to be comfortable. Comfortable. They continue to complain. They continue to grumble. Numbers chapter 11 through 14, Numbers through 25. They begin to say, I deserve better than what I have been given. And we all do that in our own hearts. But, brothers and sisters, <laughs> let's think for a minute. There's only one thing we deserve, and what is that? It's eternal hell. There's only one thing that we deserve. It's slavery in Egypt for all eternity. It's the only thing we deserve. We deserve to be in bondage to our sinful slave desires and to incur the just wrath of God. And yet, because God is so loving, He said, I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to take them up out of the miry pit. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to withhold my wrath, the wrath that is deserved. And I'm going to put it on my son on the cross. He's going to bear that wrath, take that sin so that these people who deserve nothing can have everything in my son Jesus Christ. I'm going to take my son and I'm going to raise him to life again on the third day. And everyone who believes in him, that life that Jesus has, I'm going to give them access to that eternal life. They're going to be able to be a part of that fellowship with Christ in the Holy Trinity. Not becoming the Trinity, but enjoying that fellowship and blessings. That's our God. What he does for us. Don't neglect him. Don't forget him. Talk about him today, tomorrow. Talk about him when you wake up. Think about him as you go to sleep. Remember who he is and take warning of the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're going to close here in just a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15. And you may want to go here because this really sums up. This really sums up some of Moses' final words to the people of Israel. And he sums up how they have drifted, neglected the great Savior that is Yahweh. Verse 15, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Speaking of Israel, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout and sleek, and then you forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. And you should underline Deuteronomy 32, verse 18 as a warning. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. You grew fat, prosperous, comfortable. You kicked. You wanted your own way. You grew stout and sleek and looked in the mirror and said, I can handle this myself. And then you began to forsake and even to speak ill, to scoff at God. You sacrificed to demons. You may say, I don't sacrifice to demons. The gods of this world, whatever they may be, hear me out. They have no power relative to the power of God. But make no mistake, the gods of this world are enlivened, made alive by the demonic. And the people who worship the gods of this world are in fact worshiping the demonic. And how did they get here? They were unmindful. Their mind was not on. Their mind was not toward. Their mind was not exercised by their Savior. Why does all this matter? Like Israel, by neglecting such a great Savior and a mighty salvation, you can forfeit blessings. You can forfeit blessings that were intended towards you And you can even forfeit eternal blessings and spend eternity in hell because you played the game. You weren't actually mindful. You weren't actually a follower of Christ. You were playing the game like so many Israelites did. Listen, too many have started out worshiping, enjoying all of those things, Complaining, grumbling, forgetting, becoming unmoningful, then worshiping things that they shouldn't, and eventually shipwrecking their lives. Brother and sister, friends, don't be like Himenaeus or Alexander that Paul wrote. <laughs> Shipwreck their faith. Because fathom by fathom, degree by decree, they got their eyes off of what mattered most. Oh, it just started as a little bit of complaining and grumbling just a little bit of drifting here and there, but drift by drift, click by click, decision by decision, found themselves shipwrecked on the shores. Chapter two is a warning. As we see Christ, don't neglect him. Would you pray with me? Father, this is a heavy warning. A warning that we take most seriously. And if there be any here who are just playing the game who've not decided to follow Christ with their own heart pray they would make that decision today. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us who are saved to not drift and neglect and shipwreck and forfeit blessings that could have been enjoyed here on this earth for your glory. Oh, God, may we be a church that does not neglect, that does not forget, that does not drift. Guide our hearts and minds today to follow you afresh, to recommit in our marriages, in our families, to swim upstream this week. And in Jesus' name we pray.